Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'll be talking to Ali Lafnan about her new book published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year. Her book is Self, Others in the State, Relations of Criminal Responsibility. Ali Lafnan is a professor of criminal law and criminal law theory at the University of Sydney, Australia. She's also co-director of the Institute of Criminology, Criminology at the University of Sydney. In addition to Self, Others and State, Relations of Criminal Responsibility, Ali has authored Manifest Madness in 2012, which I highly recommend. She's also the co-author of the Australian Law Student Bible, I have to say, which is Criminal Law's Materials and Commentary on Criminal Law and Process in New South Wales. Now, I can say that both of these books, I have first-hand experience, are invaluable reading, and I constantly rely on both in my own research. Ali, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jane. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write Self, Others in the State, Relations of Criminal Responsibility? Yes. Um, so I'm, a, as you mentioned, Jane, a criminal law a scholar, and um, my interest for a while has been in different uh, ways of thinking about the kind of perennial uh, issues that occupy us as criminal law scholars. And one of those big issues is criminal responsibility. And as you um, may know, Jane, the field um, of study here is really dominated, I think, by uh, particular kinds of approach to the topic, and that's the sort of legal philosophical approach or what I call the legal philosophical approach. And that's where um, scholars are looking at the issue of criminal responsibility and the, the sort of the way the criminal law is structured and the way we centre the law on individual accountability for crime as a kind of moral philosophical issue, an issue about agency or um, autonomy or um, uh, individual will. And for me, the topic has other dimensions and I was really keen to explore those other dimensions. In the book, I take a socio-historical approach to the topic. So I look at criminal responsibility as it has developed over time. And this is a kind of critical intervention, I think, into the field because as we as we know with scholarship that tends to be uh, more uh, oriented t- towards um, philosophical questions and inquiries, the um, context in which those inquiries take place is not as relevant as, say, for example, the moral norms that are reflected or refracted perhaps in the criminal law. And for me, the context is actually really important and I see the context as both historical, so change over time, and spatial, so the sort of the temporal location of um, of criminal law principles and practices. And so in my work, not just in Self, Others and the State, but in other work, I 
adopt that different methodological approach to the topic. And I think it um, generates different kinds of perspectives on what is a sort of a, a very popular topic of study. Um, you can, you can um, uh, find lots of material on criminal responsibility, but I think that it's possible to do things a little bit different if you, if you adopt this um, other lens. And, and I think that's really captured in your book. Um, you do adopt this specific uh, temporal and space kind of study, um, in particular in relation to Australia. Um, but I do think it's translatable to other jurisdictions. Um, in your focus on Australia, you look, um, it, it is, there is a departure from, you say that there's a departure from the dominant legal philosophical approaches, as might first be assumed. So, Instead, looking across jurisdictions tends to reinforce a default northern orientation, for example, looking at the systems of England and Wales and North America. And because of these relatively restricted jurisdictional ranges, the specifics disappear from view. Um, now, taking what you say into account and this different, slightly different way of doing the methodology, I'm wondering what we can learn from the Australian experience of criminal responsibility and perhaps how this knowledge is transferable. Thank you, Jane. Yes. So I think that um, because of the sort of the dominant legal philosophical approach to the topic and because much of the work that's done on criminal responsibility among scholars is done by those in the Northern Hemisphere at universities in the UK, in Canada, the US, and Scotland and elsewhere. And this tends to mean that the the kind of the specificities, as, as I say in the book, of those jurisdictions disappear and they become kind of um, generic uh, contexts. The context is sort of gen- supposedly generalisable um, and sort of, if you like, rendered um, you, uh, non-determinative of the, of the kind of um, principles and practices that are in place. And I think that that's not right in the sense that those jurisdictions have specificities that are relevant to the way criminal responsibility is developed. And so, for instance, I think one of the the relevant considerations is the way that certain academic trends have developed in cardinal institutions like Oxford, um, which um, uh, led led the way in the mid-century in the development of the kind of legal philosophical approaches that are now so, um, so important in the field. And in addition to academic knowledge production, I think other jurisdictional specificities are relevant. So, for example, in the UK context, um, the the federal law is the criminal law is at the at the um, uh, uh, wider level of applying to England and Wales. And of course, we know the Scottish criminal law is different. But as we know in Australia, the criminal law is state based and there's also criminal law at the Commonwealth level. Because we have a federal system, we have to have a negotiation sometimes between those two levels of law. And I think that that has made a difference to the way in which um, criminal law has developed in the Australian jurisdictions. So as you know, in the book, I argue that at the end of the 20th century, when um, the model criminal code was being developed and um, moving, translating into the Commonwealth criminal code, which we have today, the context, if you like, was one where the Commonwealth had to take over terrain that had been the preserve of the states. And that kind of negotiation and what that meant, I think, was a significant um, ingredient in the kind of role a uh, significant context for the kind of role that criminal responsibility now plays in the criminal law. So in a way, the federal system in Australia teaches us something distinctive about um, uh, the development of criminal responsibility. And I think that's significant because not many other jurisdictions have to deal with um, that negotiation between um, state and federal structures in the development of the criminal law. Um, in addition, I might say too that I think one of the um, interesting things that the Australian case bears on is the the kind of the assumptions that are made about criminal responsibility being, as we said before, something um, really core and fundamental to the criminal law, but at the same time something that is, if you like, beneath or um, um, separate to 
specific variation in any particular context. So one of the um, uh, things that is said about criminal responsibility is that, that, that it's the grammar of the criminal law, you know, to think of the criminal law as a language. Now, of course, the grammar of the law would be the same wherever you might find the language of the law spoken, if that, if that makes sense. And so in that sense, we're thinking, we tend to think about criminal responsibility as if it doesn't really matter where or in what positive system of law it manifests. But I think that that's um, uh, misses some aspects of the development of criminal responsibility. And in the book, I argue that the Australian case shows us that by contrast with that general idea about the generalizability of criminal responsibility, actually, we see criminal responsibility play um, a key role in the development of a sort of a sense of or an understanding of Australian criminal law. So in other words, it's not so much that it's separate to or different from the positive system in which it manifests, but rather that that positive system is, if you like, in close connection with these, these ideas of general principles. So in the book, uh, looking at the mid-century in Australia, which is when uh, criminal uh, law textbooks appeared for the first time by Australian authors um, and thinking about um, the developments um, by the High Court and particular actors like Sir Owen Dixon, we see that the um, idea that the criminal law was oriented around principles, general principles, was something that was embraced by scholars and judges and lawyers, but it was something that was seen as um, being able to be articulated in a distinctive way depending on the kind of context in which it was found. So those judges and lawyers that I mentioned were also mindful of the idea that Australian perspectives on criminal responsibility, criminal um, responsibility principles, could be different from those of, for example, the High, the high Court as it is now, um, uh, the House of Lords in the UK. In other words, it wasn't just that the principles were to be found by everyone to be the same. Everyone could be talking about principles and thinking about the criminal law in that way, but finding that those principles look different depending on where you found yourself. Yeah, and I think that really comes through in your book. Um, it's certainly um, when you talk about, you know, the birth of Australian criminal law um, in relation to textbooks and, you know, these kind of marked changes in mid-century where Australia, the High Court somewhat turned away from the guidance of the Privy Councillor. Um, and I think that comes through in relation to the principles um, as well. Uh, just kind of building on what you said uh, just now, you, you know, you've argued, I and do correct me please if I'm misinterpreting, but um, that criminal responsibility is at the heart of criminal law um, due to its normative, functional and symbolic roles. And I think this comes through with the ex Australian experience that, you know, these principles aren't as straightforward. They're more complex and they're just assumed to be, sorry, they're assumed to be. Um, can you kind of elaborate on these ideas a bit? Um, yes. Thank you, Jane. So, I think um, a good way of um, um, understanding this is to think about the particular law of insanity and that, as we know, is an aspect of non-responsibility, so a particular dimension of, of criminal responsibility. Um, by the mid-century, there had been, mid-20th century, there had been almost a, a century's worth of, of um, case law following the McNaughton decision of the House of Lords in 1843. And McNaughton had kind of left a really strong and, and distinctive stamp on the law of, of, of insanity, as it was called, and now we would, would think of it as the law of mental incapacity. Um, and according to that stamp, um, uh, the question for um, a jury is that, uh, is whether or not a defendant can be um, thought to have understood um, and reasoned in appropriate way about the events that are alleged to form the offence and then whether that um, incapacity, that lack of understanding, has particular effects, so uh, a failure to understand the act for what it is or a failure to understand its, its, um, its effects. And this um, jurisprudence was really fairly, fairly firmly established by the mid-century, but our own Australian High Court 
led by Sir Owen Dixon, but not, um, but together with others, um, working both as lawyers and as scholars, wanted to uh, or uh, investigated the law of mental incapacity um, back further than McNaughton. So, um, so Owen Dixon, who had a particular interest in mental incapacity and was a member of a society that was devoted to medico-legal issues, uh, both before and during his time on, on the High Court, felt that McNaughton had, and, in, and, and, and he didn't even like the name McNaughton um, insanity because he felt that McNaughton had, had really sort of um, taken the law of insanity off on a distinctive path and he preferred to think about the principles that were involved in, in, in mental incapacity independent of that decision. So for, for him, it was possible to come up with a principled interpretation of the law of insanity but not to have it just follow the House of Lords decision in McNaughton. Um, and what that indicates is that Australian jurists like Dixon were thinking afresh and anew about the particular issues of principle that were, if you like, orthodox at the time. And this perspective, I think, this, this new approach was possible because as one of the early textbook author, authors point, pointed out or, 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 or phrased it, Australian jurists feel less bound by the helpful binds of precedent. So in other words, freer, freer within the helpful bounds of precedent. And that, that indicates that there was a sense that Australian jurists, scholars and others could bring something fresh to these um, kinds of issues and topics. And they could, and as was um, the case in the mid-century, even see their way to departing from House, House of Lords um, precedent. And this, of course, as you know, um, really uh, was quite a, a sort of um, important cultural moment in um, in Australia and, and a, an important um, development in the on the legal landscape because it was the beginning of a time when um, we would move eventually formally to um, removing the House of Lords as a kind of um, apex court for our own jurisdictions. And that was, of course, a kind of gradual and, and somewhat uneven process over a long period of time. But this mid-century moment is really quite crucial in the development of the independence of Australian legal thinking in uh, around criminal responsibility. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and another example you give in relation to this new thinking um, that the Australian judiciary was doing at this time is in relation to the defence of honest and reasonable mistake, which was designed to kind of compensate for the perceived failings in the insanity defence. Um, and, I mean, I think the insanity defence or the McNaughton is interesting because, you know, it's still criticised but there, there doesn't seem to be um, a solution to which way to move it forward. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about this new defence of honest and reasonable mistake um, and how it evolved. Sure. And this is a, a really interesting point, I think, Jane, because one of the things that um, uh, was common to um, Australian legal scholars and, and jurists at this time, one, something they shared with others, was this concern about uh, the mental state required for criminal offences. So there was a feeling that this mental state aspect of a criminal offence was under threat and that legislatures, not just here but elsewhere, were too uh, are, are confident about playing fast and loose with the mental state requirement, too ready to um, use either negligence as a form of, of liability or perhaps even to remove a fault requirement entirely and just to look at an offence requirement, an act requirement. And one of the kind of innovative responses to that in the Australian context was this defence of honest and reasonable mistake of fact. And as you, as you highlighted, um, Jane, it's, it's a kind of innovative uh, response because what it does is it tries to create a sort of halfway house between what we could call uh, ordinary garden variety offences with an actus reus element and a mens rea element, those on the one hand, and then on the other hand, what we call in Australia um, absolute liability offences, offences with uh, only an actus reus component. And the middle ground is this ground that's um, kind of 
marked out by the honest and reasonable mistake of fact defence. And as you know, it's kind of a technical um, aspect of criminal law where the sort of the the way I think about it is that the the mens rea requirement is kind of um, behind the scenes until the defence has, has, has raised this honest and reasonable mistake of fact, and then it's enlivened and the prosecution has a duty to um, prove the our mens rea element to the satisfaction, to the criminal standard, um, as, it, as if it were an ordinary offence, just like the garden variety ordinary offence, as we mentioned a moment ago. But because this halfway house is kind of in the middle between ordinary offences with both an actus reus and mens rea requirement and these ones with only an actus reus requirement, it is thought it was thought of as preserving some of the um, uh, value of a mental state requirement. So in other words, it was seen to be better than the alternative of removing the mens rea requirement altogether. And it was a distinctively Australian solution to this perceived threat that the mental state requirement would be kind of done away with. And it was actually hoped at the time that um, other jurisdictions, most notably um, the UK, might take up this kind of this kind of innovation. Um, that didn't happen, but it's interesting to note that the confidence of Australian jurists and um, scholars and practitioners at this time meant that it was possible to think about, if you like, exporting back to the mother country something that had been developed um, out in the out in the. Um, um, dominions as they were by that time. So it's a mark, if you like, of the kind of um, independent thinking that we're talking about um, as developing in this mid-century moment. And as I argue in the book, criminal responsibility is actually really central to the way in which the criminal law comes to be thought about as Australian, um, as located or oriented um, here rather than um, radiating out from from our London, mm. and that's I think very interesting as uh, in terms of the Australian development of this notion of a unique sense of criminal responsibility, um, and especially as it relates to this kind of uh, mental capacity defence. Um, one of your concerns in the book is these kind of atypical notions of responsibility, um, as you've just discussed, insanity and honest and reasonable mistake. Um, one of the key, you know, from both the title of the book um, and, you know, one of the key sections is about atypical responsibility. For example, you talk about uh, responsibility of self in relation especially to women. I thought this was a really interesting part of the book. Um, when you, you start off arguing that criminal responsibility assumes a certain type of autonomous individual who exists in a particular social and political context and, of course, people with mental capacity um, defences are atypical of this, but also you, you discuss this in relation to women. Um, can you talk a bit about this? Yes. So this is a, a part of the book that reflects um, the um, theoretical argument that I make in the book. So as, um, as you know, Jane, the book has two main arguments and one is about the development of criminal responsibility over the 20th century and that's what we've just been discussing. The other main argument is that we've missed a certain dimension of criminal responsibility in the existing scholarship and that dimension is the way it organises relationships, relations. And I conceptualise these relations as existing between self, others and the state, a kind of a uh, tripartite construction. And as you know, the book argues that there are um, new things to be found about criminal responsibility if one looks at it in this distinctive way as organising relations between, between subjects and the state, self, others and the state. And when I looked at the um, way in which criminal responsibility relates to ideas of self, I was really keen to look um, differently or look uh, with different uh, glasses on, if you like, at the, the when compared to the usual approach. Now, as you pointed out, Jane, it's uh, really common in the scholarship in this area to be thinking about um, individuals as independent and agentic subjects who are made up, if you like, of their their will, their their, their intentions, and 
mm, their actions, but but not that much else, right? So not that much about their context, um, not that much about um, their ability, their gender, anything else. But a critical approach to criminal law, which is the school um, that I've put myself in, wants to see um, more flesh on the bones of that legal subject, if you like, wants to clothe that legal subject. And one of the ways of doing this is to think about gender. Now, even within critical scholarship, gender is not necessarily something that has um, uh, been connected to criminal responsibility. And I think that's because, with the exception of some pretty important feminist legal theory um, work by Nicola Lacey and others, Gender is seen as something that kind of impacts at the level of the positive systems of criminal law. So if it if it comes in, it comes in because legislatures, legislatures and others have kind of decided that something different should apply um, in the context. In other words, it doesn't appear some, to some people to be fundamental or foundational to the ideas of criminal responsibility. But actually I found in my research that it is indeed fundamental and I argued in the book that when you look at selves as gendered, you see actually that the situation for women, women's responsibility has really impacted very significantly on the contours of um, responsibility principles and practices in the criminal law. In other words, it's really important. What I argued was that the um, uh, uh, dynamic of women's violence generated in the criminal law for the first time in the first part of the 20th century halfway houses of responsibility, so partial or um, incomplete responsibility. And what here we can think of is as the sort of doctrines we are familiar with from the criminal law, infanticide and later uh, diminished responsibility. These were introduced into the criminal law in order to accommodate women's specific kind of responsibility. And the violence that women undertook was really, if you like, um, uh, the first, uh, the, 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 the generator of these new forms of criminal responsibility, these partial forms of criminal responsibility that made themselves present on the face of the criminal law. Now, as you know, Jane, with infanticide, it had been a very distinctive part of the criminal law for a long time. It applies to women only, but the kind of accommodation that had been um, uh, allowed for the specific cases of infanticide had been achieved absent an individual offence of infanticide right up until the first decades of the 20th century. So even though women were being recognised, if you like, as having different kinds of levels of responsibility or different kinds of responsibility, this hadn't been present on the face of the criminal law but it's the specific kind of instances of women's violence that generate these new legal forms on the face of the law. And then if you take that idea further and you look at the gendered self in the second half of the century, you see a really different dynamic. That dynamic is generated by violence against women. So really thanks to the the feminist and women's movement of the 1970s, domestic violence and violence against women came onto the the public uh, and political agenda and as a result the um, need for new kinds of distinctive legal legal forms, new kinds of atypical legal forms as I call them, um, was made apparent and in the more recent decades of um, uh, the 20th century and, and, and more recently we see new types of atypical responsibility forms. So we see for example particular um, offences and defences combined. So we see, for example, uh, defensive homicide in Victoria, which, as you know, had a very sort of short-lived life, but brought together the idea that a particular kind of offence could be associated with a particular kind of defence. In other words, the offence and the defence elements were intimately connected, not separate. And that kind of um, atypical responsibility form really appeared because there was a need to accommodate women's uh, violence against women. And what I suggest in the book is that that accommodation was required because women were, women who say, for example, retaliated against abusive partners were at, as a kind of um, central case, were both victims and offenders. And so it wasn't easy to separate out the 
um, offence and defence elements of the criminal law, as is, I think, the standard approach to criminal responsibility now. So these atypical responsibility forms are either um, bringing uh, offence and defence elements together or they're restricted to certain contexts, like, for example, retaliation to um, uh, abuse in the home or domestic abuse, and they're um, sometimes also just restricted to women. So what we see is when we look at the second half of the 20th century, we see the kind of the rise of concern about violence against women generating these new types of atypical responsibility forms. And for me, that's really significant because it's not just that these exist in the criminal law in systems in Australia and elsewhere, if you like, as if they were just super structural, but rather they go to the very ideas of responsibility. So they're fundamental to our understanding of criminal responsibility. So what I suggest in the in the book is that when we look at criminal responsibility as relations of responsibility, we see that the idea of these partial forms of responsibility like infanticide in the first half of the century was to was um, uh, enabled these new ideas about agency and autonomy that were coming through um, in criminal law scholarship to be um, reconciled with these um, social and other ideas that women were not completely responsible subjects, were not fully responsible subjects. So particularly in the context of infanticide, they would be suffering from some kind of uh, distress that impacted on their decisions um, at the time of the offence and their, their um, disturbance of mind, as the language of the offence requires, was relevant to the question of responsibility. And then if you think about relations of responsibility in the more recent eras, era, you see that natural fact, this dynamic of violence against women has meant now that instead of, again, thinking just about autonomous actors, we actually find that these new and different, again, atypical responsibility forms are actually reflecting the more general idea that the state has failed individual women who need to resort to their own defence, if you like, in the context of domestic violence. So in other words, by the time that an individual woman is seeking to rely on something like substantial impairment or um, um, another kind of uh, partial defence, it's because police, state, other actors haven't been able to um, pr- protect her from the abuse that she's facing in the home. And so there again, the idea of an individual responsible subject is not the full story. Actually, the individual uh, woman subject is being connected to other agents, other organised, other parts of um, the structure of the of the law and, and, the, and the social system. In other words, we're, we're connecting that individual agent or person with other agents, with the state, and we're seeking to provide, if you like, support for the exercise of, of autonomous rights or independent rights, such as to leave an abusive home or to be free from abuse in the first place. So these ideas about gender, I think, are actually really fundamental. And it's only through a focus on women's responsibility that one sees these different dimensions of criminal responsibility. And one can think that, in fact, it's not as generalizable and as universal as might be assumed. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I think that's right Um, because you're kind of taught in law school that concepts like criminal responsibility are these kind of very neutral 
unquestionable generalizable principles but your study in relation to gender in particular does draw out these kind of like the falsity of these um these assumptions um and as you you know you give example the kind of changing nature of women in terms of their pathologization um in the defenses and the crimes that they commit is actually a double-edged sword so i think and i think that that really comes out um so just building on this point in relation to you mentioned you know this concept of um the state and also others being responsible not just to women but there is this notion of responsibility and criminal responsibility to others um and you give really good and interesting examples um for example, um, I was I was very interested. I didn't know anything about the law of consorting. I, I have to admit, it's um, I didn't study it as part of my undergraduate program, and but I, it was fascinating. Um, this this notion of um, responsibility of others in terms of serious and organised crime. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about that and how it's developed over time from these vagrancy laws um, to now, you know, targeting you know bikey gangs and and this kind of thing. Yeah, so this is another aspect of criminal uh, responsibility that I think sometimes goes um, unnoticed. And that's, if you like, a way, the way in which the principles of criminal responsibility are connected to what scholars call the special part of criminal law. So criminal responsibility thought of as the general part of criminal law, as we've been saying, Jane, the the bit that's generalisable, the bit that applies um, across the board and, and, if you like, provides the substructure for the criminal law, the individual offences and defences. But in actual fact, we see that the way in which criminal responsibility principles and practices have developed is very much in connection with that that positive, um, that that special part, that uh, section of the criminal law that is the individual offences and defences. And one of the ways that um, we can uh, see this is by thinking about the relations of responsibility that uh, exist between individuals or, as I put it in the book, between self and others. So as you point out, I there look at the law of consorting. And the reason for that is because consorting is one of the ways that the criminal law governs otherwise ordinary interactions between people. So as as you know, Jane, consorting criminalises uh, association with someone with a criminal record, as we would now, as we would now put it, or a particular kind of criminal record. So, in other words, a, a record for particular kinds of of offences, such as, um, for instance, uh, a, um, child abuse. Now, consorting is generally speaking um, a bit of a an anathema to criminal law scholars, and that's because it tends to um, uh, criminalise individuals where they haven't uh, uh, exhibited the kind of mental state that we usually associate with a criminal charge. Criminal consorting can um, uh, take place even if an individual doesn't intend to commit an offence or isn't reckless as to committing an offence. And that's because the way the offence of consorting is structured is that it's um, occurs when that person associates with someone who has a criminal charge. So what we're what we're looking at here is this kind of unusual aspect of the criminal law, where by what you what you know as a person, what you know about someone else, is the basis for your conviction, and that someone else is the one with the with the record. So. It's not something that we can tend to think of as a, a very bright spark of the criminal law because it tends to kind of raise some questions about the reach of the law. But it's something that is uh, a particularly notable Australian contribution or um, Australian and New Zealand contribution to the law, Jane, because consorting um, grew out of the law of vagrancy in the early 20th century when Australian uh, legislators uh, looked uh, for, if you like, new ways of kind of policing particular classes of individuals. So vagrancy law, which was really more about, you know, the control of people rather than criminal offences, was something that developed uh, much earlier when uh, people became mobile, uh, they were no longer um, serfs attached to particular land but could use their manual labour elsewhere and could move around. 
And the kind of um, uh, social response was to kind of, um, uh, if you like, uh, look for ways of controlling that kind of new mobility and new freedom. And vagrancy law governed, as the, as the colloquialism is now, rogues and vagabonds and others. And that kind of highly moralised language shows us that what was going on was less about sort of criminal offences and more about the kind of social threat that these sorts of individuals um, posed. In the Australian context, in the early part of the 20th century, consorting became an, another a new basis for being charged with being convicted of vagrancy. So associating with criminals and those criminals were specified at first as, you know, um, thieves and uh, um, and prostitutes um, uh, became an offence in itself. And the idea here was that, of course, you would want to stop people from associating with um, individuals who were disre- disreputable in some way on the basis that perhaps that would lead to further crime or, as was really the kind of key concern in the early part of the century, would lead to the perception or the, the idea that, um, there was a there was a significant threat out there um, that um, was uh, to be controlled by the criminal law. So vagrancy got this kind of new lease on life in the Australian context, and that was the kind of um, a way of governing relations between individuals. So the key concern at this time was not so much individual offences, but rather the threat posed by, say, for example, congregating uh, together. Uh, with people who had criminal um, criminal uh, profiles. And, of course, at the time, it wasn't even that they necessarily had criminal convictions, but it was that the sort of the more stable social structure that applied at the time meant that police, constables and, and others regarded their belief that someone was a prostitute, for example, as sufficient for... The, um, the fact that they were. So in other words, you could be convicted of consorting just on based on the idea that the police um, knew someone, quote-unquote knew, someone to be of um, uh, a particular uh, reputation and reputation really sustained this area of the law. It didn't require criminal convictions to find someone lo- char- to charge them for, with consorting. In fact, you could be charged with consorting even if the other person didn't have a conviction but was believed to be, had the reputation of being a thief, for example. Now, that was a very helpful construction for policing because it meant that you could charge someone without, say, for example, going further and looking for mental state of um, as would be required for a substantive offence. And what that kind of um, relation provided was a way of kind of governing threats, as we're saying, threats to the social order. Now, the stable social system that that rested on fell away in the sort of by the mid-century period and their ideas about human rights and freedom of movement and expression and also kind of procedural concerns with whether or not a police person's belief in your reputation was actually enough to give you the reputation of being a thief, kind of were no longer plausible. And so the law changed and it was necessary to look at um, uh, associations between between, um, individuals and those who had criminal convictions in a different way. And there the relationships became something, I argue in the book, different. And here now we're thinking about those relations as something that actually go far beyond the idea of a threat to the community in the particular place in which an individual might be congregating and to a much bigger idea about disloyalty to the state. So what I suggest in the book is that consorting now, which as you pointed out, Jane, is a part and parcel of the very serious end of the the criminal spectrum, organised crime um, and other kinds of offences, that um, govern um, serious uh, criminal conduct, now those kinds of um, offences actually encode something different about the relationships between um, others. Now what they encode, I suggest, is, is disloyalty to the, to the state. So in other words, consorting, hanging out with um, your friends or others who may be um, subject to um, have, have criminal um, convictions is now something that demonstrates that you are not um, adhering to, if you like, or 
or furthering the goals of the of the of the of the state through the criminal law. So a classic example you mentioned it yourself, Jane, is bikey gangs. And as we know, bikey gangs are this kind of boogeyman in the criminal law because even though you know it's still required that the uh, organisation be a criminal organisation for the purposes of prescription of organisations. We refer to outlaw motorcycle gangs as if that was a kind of legal category as opposed to, say, a journalist. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but bikey gangs are a good example for us because what they show is that consorting is now part of the armoury of the criminal law for very serious crime. It's not something that's designed to pick up um, lower-level offences committed by um, people who are not seen to be as much of a threat, but rather it's designed to kind of help the state um, uh, control borders, um, protect from drug importation, for example. And in that, in doing that, the kind of um, relations that are being constructed through consorting is, um, is relations of loyalty, I suggest. In other words, you as someone who is being asked not to associate with uh, an individual who's um, got a criminal record, you're actually being asked to show loyalty to the state and not loyalty to that individual. And I think this is particularly important to understand because, as we know, citizenship is being remoralised and in the context of the current era, things like uh, loyalty, allegiance, these are ideas that are usually thicker notions that are usually associated with, say, for example, um, citizenship law, but they make themselves felt in the criminal law as well. And I think it's really important to understand that these relations between others, which we tend to occlude when we're thinking about criminal responsibility, we, we go only so far as to kind of think about um, group crime to a small extent. But what, actually what we see when we look at these um, atypical offences, these offences that really kind of uh, might find themselves on the margin of any, of any criminal responsibility scholarship they actually are quite central to this changed concept of um, relations of responsibility. They actually show us that the kind of uh, relations between others, what individuals are responsible for and to whom they are responsible, those things have changed fundamentally. Yeah, I think that's um, that's really interesting in terms of just drawing on your point about these laws coming out of this kind of highly, highly moralised period and now how they have kind of evolved um and then I think also relates to your your third kind of category in relation to the responsibility of state and how the notion of state responsibility to citizens has changed so for example this kind of you know very I think bleak history uh big incidents in Australian history for example the treatment of um, Aboriginal people um, and also in terms of the forced migration of British children from the UK, um, there is this kind of changed notion of responsibility, this very paternalistic and, you know, saving these people, building the empire. And now finally only, you know, in, in quite recent years do we see a kind of shift of this responsibility um, can you talk about this notion of state responsibility also? Yes. So, Jane, that's right. As um, um, we might guess, the state's really central to um, a criminal responsibility structure. So it's the kind of um, uh, organising um, arm, if you like, of criminal responsibility. You're being called to account by the state in the form of the criminal trial. And so state's been sort of central to the way we think about criminal responsibility, but it tends to have been thought about as, if you like, the kind of just as an arbiter, if you like, present by its absence, what we could almost say. And there's actually more to be said about the role of the state in criminal responsibility principles and practices. Criminal responsibility um, of the state is something that's sometimes thought about by international lawyers as kind of a relevant consideration in the international realm. But it bears on the domestic criminal law as well because we have seen, we can see, um, I argue in the book, change over time in the role of the state and in particular in the division of um, individual responsibility on the one hand and state responsibility on the other. So the study I undertake in the book is of state responses to uh, institutional uh, 
uh, abuse of children. Now, I'm using language that we're very familiar with now because of high-profile inquiries into this issue. But if we go back towards the beginning of the 20th century, we see that what we would now call crimes are not necessarily conceptualised as such and what we would perhaps now think of as major institutional um, problems were not understood in that way. So my study takes us from that early period right up to the current day. And what I do is instead of looking, as criminal responsibility scholars tend to do, at criminal cases, I looked instead at public inquiries into these um, uh, allegations of um, abuse in institutional context. And as you know, Jane, we've had a whole series of um, inquiries, public inquiries into this issue, and they can kind of take us through the century. And what we see at the early part of the time is that the state was understood, if you like, to have a kind of a a minimal role to kind of be behind the scenes, perhaps providing um, guidance or maybe even resources to institutions, but nothing more than that. In the middle of the century, when we, we see the rise of the regulatory Uh, state, we see that um, uh, the state as such becomes responsible for training, um, professional training of workers in this um, institutional, in these institutions, becomes responsible for, say, professional standards and becomes more involved. And then over the second half of the century and into the current era, we see the state get involved even further. And now we have, as we know, we have a kind of sense that the state has responsibility not just forward in time to prevent these kinds of abuses happening in the future, but also back in time to provide compensation or reparation for abuses that occurred over a period that's now passed. And as you mentioned, Jane, this is particularly relevant for our understanding of the role of um, the state in the context of um, institutional abuse of Aboriginal children who were taken into um, care by in organisations and um, in white families over many decades in what we now know as the stolen generations. And this is a really kind of crucial dimension of Australia's um, history of state responsibility because it's the sort of thing that, um, if you like, left a, an, a mark on the way that the state would deal with institutional abuses of children more generally. And this responsibility, I argue, began as a responsibility for Aboriginal people. In other words, not to Aboriginal people, but for Aboriginal people, as if Aboriginal people were the burden, quote unquote, of the white um, colonial uh, and post-colonial government system. And that has become, I think, in more recent years with, with lots of problems, and there needs to be qualifications over this, more of a sense of responsibility to, in other words, accountability to victims of uh, institutional uh, child abuse. And this, in the current era, is something that has, as you say, um, impacted on our attitudes to uh, individuals who were brought here under forced migration from the UK, as well as to Indigenous people, and as well as to people who were abused in homes um, and institutions uh, as children other than those other categories. So now we have a sense that the state responsibility in relation to these issues is really extensive. It's Trans, it, it goes back in time and it goes forward in time. And the kind of embrace of that idea of state responsibility has been relatively recent, but it takes place in a context in which other um, jurisdictions are grasping, gra- grappling with this same issue. And so the kind of the, the, the sort of the um, period in which this kind of uh, responsibility could be resisted, so with, I'm thinking back here to the Howard years when there could be a sense that, well, that wasn't us, that was a different government, that was an earlier era, that was uh, individuals who worked in welfare who were well-intentioned even if their their ideas were really um, uh, uh, um, racist and, in fact, their practices were, were what some scholars have called genocidal. Now that kind of resistance has, I think, fallen away and we've recognised that the, um, the rights and the kind of... Um, uh, context in which this victimisation occurred is really profoundly, deeply reflective of problems with the state. And so, in other words, this kind of case has come to reflect back on the state in particular ways, not to be seen as something discrete that can be kind of parceled off. And so now what I think and um, what I argue in the book is that the kind of state responsibility we see in the current era is actually 
a highly developed sense of state responsibility that articulates onto uh, onto a broader level and that looks, if you like, at a whole of society responsibility for the kinds of terrible crimes and harms that we now know occurred over such a long period. And with this change in the state, in the idea of state responsibility or relations of responsibility around the state, we actually see different kinds of levels of individual responsibility too. So in the early period, individuals would have been seen to be the responsible ones. It was only individuals that could be um, thought to be um, uh, uh, held accountable for a particular offence occurring at a particular time. That changed slightly, I think, in the in the mid-century period when the kind of medicalization of things like child abuse uh, meant that individuals who committed such offences in institutions or elsewhere were pathologised and were thought to have a, a disorder of a certain kind. And that meant that there was other kind of agencies or individuals coming in as responsible too because these individuals couldn't perhaps be fully couldn't be held to account fully if they suffered from some kind of um, disorder. But overlaying that kind of idea in the, recent sen- in the recent decades is the idea that even if an individual perpetrator is held to account, that is not the end of the story. In fact, actually, we need to look more broadly at the institutional context, the kind of protections that were in place for children, the safeguards. We need to think um, about uh, reporting uh, structures and mechanisms. We need to think about working with children's checks, all these kinds of things that have come into place because responsibility is not just about the individual. So here the dynamic, uh, the division of labour, if you like, between state responsibility and individual responsibility is not that more of one equals less of the other. Rather, it's actually that they could be both elevated to this, this new level in the current era. And that's, I think, really significant because what that tells us is that the dynamic around state um, in relations of responsibility is actually quite um, variable over time and it's the kind of thing that really um, shows us that we shouldn't assume that the state has a sort of fairly limited and static place uh, um, role to play in criminal responsibility. Actually, we, we can think much more deeply about that issue and we can see a really kind of um, a dynamic dimension of state responsibility when we look socio-historically over the, the 20th century. And I do really think that comes through, um, you know, your historical and legal, legal socio-analysis over these three ideas of self, others and the state shows that, and specifically in the Australian context, shows that criminal responsibility is changing and it is dynamic and it is complex. Um, and that was one of my key takeaways from the book, I think, that, you know, we do need to question these kind of normative assumptions that we make um and I, I really think that comes through really strongly um I really enjoyed it now Ali I've taken up a lot of your time but before you go do you mind just telling us a little bit about what you're working on now thank you very much Jane I'm very glad that you enjoyed the book um so I have now turned my attention Jane to a couple of specific projects that I've been interested in for a while but um, haven't uh, been able to work on due to the due to the the book, um, and these uh, projects concern um, uh, one, for example, concerns the way in which we um, memorialise, perhaps is the right word, victims in the form of um, legislature that goes under the name of the victim. So, as you know from our our um, jurisdictions here, we have things like Zoe's Law, um, laws that are, if you like. Um, um, memorialising a particular victim at a particular time. And they have proliferated not just in Australia but elsewhere and perhaps one of um, the most uh, famous cases comes from um, the US. When we um, look back, we see Megan's Law being a particular law about the, um, the way um, pedophiles, are, um, uh, people convicted of child sexual abuses, are treated once they've left prison. Um, these have proliferated in criminal law over the last few decades. And I think there's um, an interesting dimension to this um, practice of naming criminal laws after such individuals. It's been said by others that these individuals are often white, often female, often young. But I think that we need to think perhaps beyond that and we need to think perhaps about the way this sort of memorialisation individualizes harm and what that does then to a kind of a systemic sense of 
um, the structure of the criminal law. I think this um, practice bears on the legitimacy of the criminal law and I'm interested in exploring that aspect in, in a sort of a, um, a discrete project. Um, I'm not sure that's a book. I think that it's a, a perhaps it's a um, uh, shorter than that or, or a smaller uh, time frame. Um, but I'm I'm looking forward to a next uh, book length project um, to emerge at some point in the future. That sounds really interesting. I'm looking at a case uh, only recently in the Canadian Supreme Court, actually about a similar Christopher's Law, um, exactly on that kind of thing. It's, it sounds very fascinating. So I'll I'll very much look forward to reading it. Um, uh, yeah, especially as um, I am genuinely a huge fan of your work. I, I did read Manifest Madness and, of course, uh, the textbook, um, also really fascinating. Thank you very much, Jane. Oh, Ali, no, thank you. Um, thank you for your time to again, to, uh, again today. Um, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking to Ali Lofnan about her new book, Self, Others in the State, Relations of Criminal Responsibility. You've been listening to New Books in Law for the New Books Network. 